0: Welcome to the Hallowed Halls. I'm Danielle, the Armchair Scholar, and this is my guide to the strange and unusual things that capture the imagination, that make your skin crawl, and that haunt you long after you've walked out of the movie or put down the book. Let's take a journey through film, television, books, and the works of actual scholars to get a better look at the tropes, legends, lore, and mythologies that make up these weird worlds and their inhabitants. Welcome back to our second episode on the weird world of clowns. Last time we took a deep dive into the topic of subversive clowns in history. This was important to set up a working definition as we move forward, because, as we've seen, not all clown figures look the same, but all of them have a very important role in society. We even saw that while we know that this figure is mostly associated with more wholesome, mainstream images today, this wasn't necessarily the case throughout history. If you are not familiar with the background on this figure, I highly suggest that you listen to the first episode for more context, because it will factor into what we're going to look at next. Scary clowns have been a staple in horror for a while. The idea of a clown who hides his true intentions is something that has made its way into film long before we had the big names that we are looking at today. Even the great Lon Chaney once said, that the essence of true horror is a clown at midnight, and not only is he correct, he's also highlighting something important to keep in mind. Most figures we know that are considered terrifying in the dark are ones that we understand as being monsters. We don't have to explain why a werewolf emerging from the shadows is scary, or why a man with a knife hiding in the dark is dangerous. In horror and real life respectively, Our instincts register the obvious threats of these figures, and code them as predators. A clown, as it is, has none of these elements, and yet it's still able to scare us. It's just something that looks strange, and a clown in the dark is something that clearly doesn't belong. But this is also why this figure is so enduring. Because we're not given a reason why this is frightening, writers and filmmakers, and even ordinary people, have been able to fill in this reason with whatever they want. As mentioned in the previous episode, there are so very many clowns to choose from that this topic could span an entire year, and we still probably wouldn't get a chance to cover every subversive or killer clown that has graced pop culture or just fiction. To keep this a manageable task, I am focusing only on three chosen because of what they represent and how their creators and their fanbase has worked to keep them relevant through multiple appearances. While it's very likely that one of your favourite clowns isn't on this list, I'm sure that some of this discussion will still apply to them. And with that out of the way, let's meet our first fiend in Grease Paint. As far as famous clowns go, Art the Clown from Terrifier isn't usually the first one to come to mind, unless you're talking with a horror fan. There is a brief history of his appearances available in the show notes if you've never seen him before, but Art is a clown that has been around for longer than you might think. One of the things you'll find in those notes is that while Art is a relative newcomer in the world of killer clowns, He has quickly become a favorite in horror circles and developed his own cult following over the last decade. At the time of this podcast, his second movie, Terrorfire 2, is set to be released very soon. His first ever appearance was actually back in 2008 in a short film by Damien Leone called The Ninth Circle, and he was again present in 2011 in a series of shorts for the film All Hallows' Eve. That said, most people got their first look at him when the movie Terrifier came out in 2017. This film was very well received, and had a great amount of praise, but Art had the bad luck to go clown shoe to clown shoe with not only the highest grossing horror film of all time at that point, but also, arguably, one of the most iconic killer clowns in modern film. We'll be getting to his popular rivals soon enough. But it should be noted that filmmaker Damien Leone created Art as a direct opposite to Stephen King's infamous clown. In an interview with Dread Central, Leone stated, I consciously went out of my way to make Art the Clown the complete opposite of Pennywise. Art is bald, he's black and white, Pennywise speaks, Art doesn't. Pennywise doesn't use any weapons, Art the Clown uses any weapon he can get his hands on. Though he wasn't conceived with the historical figures that we've seen in mind, Art's accidental pedigree is pretty easy to trace regardless. In some regard, it will require a little unpacking, but even just to watch his antics, you can see this connection comes not only from his look, but also, especially, from his behaviour. Starting with that signature look, the first figure that we have to consider is, most obviously, Piero as Envisioned by De We can see the direct line from Piero to art in the use of the monochrome costume and makeup, but it's also in the exaggerated miming techniques he communicates with, and very specifically the mystery of his mute performance. We know from before that De had chosen not to speak, and while it was obvious to scholars that this was to showcase his physical talent, The miming opens itself up to a more sinister element in these performances. Benjamin Radford, writing about the art of pantomime, said, "...silence is one aspect that makes a clown mysterious and unnerving. For his thoughts and motivations, whether benevolent or malicious, may be on his mind, but never on his tongue." While Piero and pantomime as a whole might have involved an implied darker element, particularly when we know that the actor who made Piero famous did kill someone. There's no such subtlety with art. Critic for eye Horror Daniel Cervantes, described art as some unknown evil entity embodied by a murderous clown with no reason or motive who uses silence to taunt his victims. But as implied by Leone's weapons comment, he does a hell of a lot more than hurt your feelings. Leone admits that his motives were a lot more inspired by the Italian giallo films like Suspiria. He also cites a lot of influence from the slashers that the Italian films inspired, particularly the early days in the genre that featured gore as a main attraction. That goes a long way to explaining why art is so utterly violent in his attacks, but much of what he does has the same qualities as figures like Mr. Punch. Art isn't just violent, but gleefully so. He doesn't switch from being silly and funny to becoming suddenly sinister. Rather, his cruelty is something he is insanely joyful about, and this serves to both amplify and dismiss the horror of what he does. This also is a page right out of the textbook of a Punch and Judy show. Punch is the absolute opposite of the sanctity of life, and his antics showcase that strange, mean-spirited need in all of us to laugh at pain. Clive Barker himself was quoted as saying, Punch has always fascinated me because he's so cruel and so funny at the same time. For Punch, whether it's beating his wife, killing his baby, defying authority, or killing the devil, who is supposed to be his eternal punisher and keeper, His actions speak directly to the sense that nothing is sacred, least of all life. Art mirrors exactly that mockery of life that we see in Punch, and he delights in the act of causing pain, and being excessive in his cruelty. His joy in his antics is made all the more disturbing, because as Cervantes said, he acts with no reason or motive, and there is nothing that his victims really did to bring on their murder other than get his attention. In this instance, punch and art both represent the chaotic elements of clowning that make both of the memorable and terrifying figures. Drawing from history, clowns perfectly embody a character that is set apart from humanity as a whole, because they offer no sense of duty to our cultural and societal norms. Radford stated that the clown figure is generally devoid of allegiance, He has no masters, and is a man in full and at his own command. And because of this, they can operate outside of any principles that we might try to fix upon them, even ideas of good and evil. And when you have a figure that embraces that chaos, that is unconcerned with our concepts of right and wrong, even laughing in the face of them, you get a clown that looks at the world and asks, why so serious? Holding the title of the Clown Prince of Crime, the Joker is one of, if not the most iconic villains in all of comics history, and one of the most celebrated figures in pop culture. As a figure, the Joker needs no introduction. He's been with us in comics, TV shows, blockbuster movies, video games, and cartoons starting all the way back in 1940. In 80 years of history, Everyone has had some version of this figure etched into their psyche, whether it was from one of the comic books, Cesar Romero in the 60s, Jack Nicholson in the 80s, the Mark Hamill-voiced cartoon in the 90s, Heath Ledger's final performance in The Dark Knight, or even Joaquin Phoenix's more recent portrayal of the character. There are many elements to this character that make him interesting, but among them is how, despite the fact that he is supposed to be a human being, the Joker might be defeated and get killed off in any given series or show he might be a part of, but as showcased by how long he's been around, this is a clown that never truly dies. This was something that happened right at the beginning of his life in comics. According to Brian K. Eason from CBR, formerly Comic Book Resources, The Joker was originally supposed to die in the first comic that he was ever featured in. Eason writes that Whitney Ellsworth, the series editor, decided the character had potential and should survive. Indeed, throughout the 1940s a pattern emerged by which the Joker appeared to die, only to be revealed as alive and well later. This pattern is more telling of what this villain's real role is, especially as the Joker developed alongside his nemesis. Depending on who's telling the story, the Joker can be seen as a warped reflection of Batman's trauma, that mirrors all his traits played out like a mockery of what he represents. There is a particularly gruesome pictorial representation of this in the final comic of the Endgame series, wherein Batman is slashed across the back by the Joker, the wounds made to look like a wide, gaping smile, not unlike that of his nemesis. Of course, because there's been so many iterations of the character, there are definitely stories where this is more true and others where it is absolutely not. For our purposes, I cannot possibly go over all of them, but we're going to try to hit the highlights of some of the ways that the Joker performs as the opposite side to the same coin as Batman. There are the obvious elements such as Batman's brooding and darkness set against a painted-up clown with a brutal sense of humor. This is particularly obvious in Tim Burton's version of the clown with Jack Nicholson decked out with the green hair, the purple suit and the Conrad Veldt smile. In his article for The Observer, Brandon Katz wrote that out of a sense of victimization, grew a strong desire for retaliation which could apply to either Batman, or the Joker. What makes this particular portrayal of interest, however, is that in Burton's film, Batman comes from and always has had money, whereas the Joker is described as being a gangster at heart, consumed with a lust for power and money as a means of self-validation. This all establishes their polarity, but Burton goes the extra step and creates their connection to each other when it's revealed that this version of the Joker is the one who killed Bruce Wayne's parents. Their existence is reliant on each other as Batman, inadvertently, created the Joker when he knocked Nicholson's character into the chemicals that deformed him into the gesture of genocide. A lot of times, however, there are less obvious visual clues to suggest their connection. In The Dark Knight, Heath Ledger's Joker was chaotic and disheveled, with a mess of makeup all over his face to contrast the sleek lines that made up Batman's own look. This depiction goes even deeper into establishing the way they relate to each other, as the Joker's tagline, why so serious, is almost a direct question not just to his victims, but specifically to Batman himself. As Roger Ebert said in his review of the film for the Chicago Times, the Joker is a Mephistopheles whose actions are fiendishly designed to pose a moral dilemma for his enemies. Going back to Katz's take on Ledger's Anarchist Joker, he states that this representation relies heavily on the theories of philosopher Thomas Hobbes, that the only check against our innate destructiveness was the loose illusion of societal norms supported by strong authoritarian enforcement. The thing is, Batman doesn't operate within the world of societal norms, and the face that he puts out to the world as the vapid, rich playboy is just as artificial as the clown's permanent smile. In Nolan's films, Batman is not necessarily a paragon of virtue, either. His methods for taking care of criminals is violent and, though he refuses to kill, lacking in empathy towards his own victims. Even going so far as to choose not to save the life of Liam Neeson's character during the climax of Batman Begins. That said, when he is faced with the opportunity to kill the Joker, his nemesis taunts Batman by saying, this is what happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object. You won't kill me out of some misplaced sense of self-righteousness, and I won't kill you because you're just too much fun. I think you and I are destined to do this forever. There's more to tie these two figures together in their perpetual war with each other. One of the more common, that we've already seen an example of already, is how they reflect each other in regards to how they came to be. Maybe. The Joker has stated before that he prefers to approach his history as multiple choice rather than ever divulge his actual origin. And even that gives us a link and an opposite factor. We know why Bruce Wayne has become a crime fighter, and his survivor's guilt and psychological damage sits on him, adding weight to his every decision. Meanwhile, depending on whose lens we're seeing the criminal clown through, He, too, sometimes has the weight of a past trauma that has shaped him into the icon we know. In Alan Moore's comic Killing Joke, the Joker was the result of one bad day, and in the newer film Joker with Joaquin Phoenix, the narrative draws heavily on his criminality being the result of untreated mental illness and abuse coming to a head on one bad day. Of course, with Batman, we know him to be telling the absolute truth, and his painful one bad day shaped his whole world and his outlook on life and death. The Joker, ever the unreliable narrator, may have indeed been the result of that one bad day, but we can never really be sure. His painted face might be a method for hiding the reality of his fractured psyche, much like Batman, but what's to say that he wasn't just a monster looking for an excuse to hang his murderous plan off of? And who's to say that his brutal lust for murder isn't really just Batman's own darker impulses? At the Comics Arts Conference discussion on the Joker at San Diego Comic-Con in 2016, Dr. Travis Langley, professor of psychology, spoke about Batman's outlier elements as a hero, saying he has already embraced the shadow archetype, which commonly in stories is put in the role of the villain. So many heroes, their arch-nemesis is themselves dressed in black. In his book, Super Gods, comic writer Grant Morrison wrote that the rest of Batman's rogues gallery personified various psychiatric disorders to great effect. By psychoanalyzing his enemies with his fists, Batman may have hoped to escape the probing gaze of the analyst himself, but it was not to be. There was, after all, something deeply mad about Batman. His role as crime fighter in Perpetual Mourning, Batman is never going to grow beyond his trauma. By contrast to this, the Joker not only mocks his pain, but also seeks to release him from it. Granted, he wants to do that by making him into a killer. But in doing this, he's trying to force Batman into accepting his role as the criminal he already is, as a vigilante that operates outside of the law. In the same SDCC talk mentioned previously, researcher Ryan Litzie, in discussing his contribution to the book The Joker, A Serious Study of the Clown Prince of Crime, described the Joker as being like Nietzsche's Übermensch, and how this would cast Batman in the role of the man of recettement. Litzy explains that Batman's role is of a man who consistently lies to himself, and by contrast, the Joker is truly free, and Batman consistently denies his own freedom. That freedom, in this case, is to embrace his own inherent criminality and desire to cause pain, and Litzy explains that because he refuses to take that last step, the Joker is uniquely obsessed with freeing him up and getting him to commit to it. This might all sound a bit heavy and a lot philosophical, but it's not out of keeping with what we've already seen with the clowns we've met. They are paradoxical figures that embody both truth and lies at the same time. The thing is, their mask, their mockery of our happy faces, are our lies. The truth they hide beneath that mask can be things like a deep swollen depression that one cannot find the means to express in their world, or murderous impulses that are driven by no sense of logic that dwell hidden in the backs of our minds. Or the aftermath of traumatic events that we just cannot accept or allow ourselves to let go of until it drives us mad. Or maybe even a fear of our own mortality as we shed our childhood innocence and see adulthood for what it really is for the first time. Our final clown that we are going to talk about is not only a truth teller for his victims, but also the only one who steps up to do the hard work to remind us that be it through old age, circumstance, disease, or accident, we too will die. He reminds us that death is not fair. It cares not for what you want, or who you are, or what your plans are. And he's wrapped up the Victorian's message of Memento Mori in a bright red balloon. Arguably one of the most recognizable clowns in fiction since Stephen King first penned his novel, It. Pennywise the Dancing Clown has been a horror icon for decades. If you're not familiar with this character, the short version is that Pennywise is a clown that preys mostly on children, and lurks in the sewers of the fictional town of Derry, Maine. Because Stephen King. There are many things that make Pennywise notable, but among them is that this killer is the only one on this list that isn't really a clown at all. While his more recognizable form is that of the Clown, Pennywise is actually a shapeshifter, who is able to become whatever his prey is most afraid of. There is a lot more lore associated with this character, as he is tied to King's massive dark fantasy series, The Dark Tower, which is itself a discussion for another time. And in light of this, we're going to focus our attention only on Pennywise from the book, The 1990 film, starring Tim Curry, and the remake starring Bill Skarsgård. Starting at the beginning, we need to get to know Pennywise in his natural habitat, the book that started it all. Published first in September of 1986, it remains one of King's most popular novels, and its star villain is a huge contributor to the book's continued success. Upon looking at the reviews for the book, however, you'll find out very quickly that this is nothing if not a polarizing read for many people, assuming they even finish it. The book is notorious for its crushing length, and the fact that a good portion of that length is to facilitate the enormous backstory of Derry, the mythology behind what Pennywise actually is, and how this creature's influence has shaped this wicked little town. Outside the fictional elements, however, the length can also be attributed to how it was written, and what it meant to its author. According to his review of the book for Tor, fellow horror author Grady Hendrix wrote that this book is King's confirmation ceremony, his bar mitzvah, his coming of age. According to Hendrix, King originally wrote the first draft in 1980, and had to park his progress on the novel for almost a whole year before he could start work on it again, because the process of writing this story took so much out of him. Considering that it took another six years to make it to the shelves, even taking into account the publication process, it isn't surprising how much of a toll it took on the author, There is a lot to unpack in this novel, more than I could ever cover in probably a series of episodes. And that's to say nothing of the fact that you have to eat your way through all that history, character development, and lore before you get to see the re-emergence of our star clown in action after the drama of his first kill. This isn't to say that Pennywise isn't important for the first half of the story, nor is he entirely absent per se. Obviously, that incredible opening scene with Georgie gives us a taste of what we're in for, and his role is from that point on somewhat telegraphed as we get to know the main characters. And with that out of the way, we can ask ourselves, what exactly is the role of Pennywise in the book? To understand our clown, much like the Joker before, we have to understand what's really happening to our losers. For all that IT encompasses many different levels of narratives, among the most prevalent theme is that of the loss of innocence. Each of the kids is subject to their own personal nightmares, but they're each terrorized by fears of the small things made big. The monsters on the screen come to life. There is more for them to fear in Derry, even just as they make their way through town, but Pennywise is aware that they aren't ready for the big world yet. They're getting there, and sometimes they even understand their world is shifting under their feet, but their fears are still relegated to the intangible or the fantastical. These small fears reduce even Henry Bowers to them as just a way of life and another kid, for now. Bowers is made into a viable threat against them eventually, but in reality, it's not like he ever wasn't. The real difference is that when they're in Pennywise's lair, They are seeing clearly what Henry, and by proxy what the clown, actually is. It wasn't an accident that their confrontation in the sewer ended in the infamous sex scene that readers have been talking about for decades now. That moment was their turning point, where the veil of what they thought was true is ripped off and it reveals the core of the story. This book really is about the tragedy of growing up. It is the essence of nostalgia lamenting the personal battles and final victory over shedding your own childhood, but still looking over your shoulder to admire it in the rearview mirror. The thing about nostalgia, however, is that it's rarely honest, and as Hendrix points out, when it comes to the kids, King isn't being entirely truthful, either. One of the things that Hendrix points out about the novel is how its kids are a little too perfect, viewed through a soft-focus haze that is a bit too luminescent and forgiving. This is exactly the same kind of wash that we paint our own past with when we as adults want to distance ourselves from our big world problems, whether they be pressing personal things like financial stability or career woes, or the much bigger picture problems like systemic racism, a massive pandemic, or political unrest. Not that we know anything about that. Hendrix's conclusion that this book is about the fact that some doors only open one way, and while there's an exit out of childhood named sex, there's no door leading the other way that turns adults back into children. This explains for us why not only do we forgive King for creating less than realistic children as his heroes, we also would want nothing less. When faced with these looming adult concerns, none of which will go away on their own, It's a comfort to look back on the terrors and tragedies that can seem so small and easy to contend with now that they're over. King understood this when writing his young protagonists. When Hendricks writes that these aren't real kids, they're the kids we all wish we could have been. He even admits that this is one of the strengths of the story, even if he also claims that it's one of its weaknesses as well. There are plenty of other novels and films out there that try to do justice to the complicated and often cruel nature of children. But King didn't want to, or need to, write Lord of the Flies or Let's Go Play at the Addamses. He had his truth-teller built into the story already, so he was free to create his fairy tale characters the way he wanted. The Clown's truth-teller is present in every adaptation, as we'll see. But Pennywise's primary focus in the book is to bring the children to that point where they are unable to deny that adulthood, the putting away of the smaller fears and preparing for the bigger ones, is the biggest, scariest thing in front of them. King has said that his inspiration included the tale of the three billy goats gruff, and you can see the cogs of this story working through its villain. Just as much as you can see him acting as the troll that the characters in IT have to outsmart and eventually face down to cross their own bridge, you can see Pennywise, and by extension Derry, mirroring another fairy tale villain. In all the incarnations of this story, the adults are relegated to pretty much side characters when they aren't acting like secondary villains, and among the most damning thing they do is set their children off to the journey to adulthood alone. On that path, like the Big Bad Wolf before him, Pennywise is ready to challenge them on their way, and, in some cases, to end their journey entirely. His presence in this instance is a reminder of the lurking realization that not everyone gets a chance to grow up. In their second edition of Folk and Fairy Tales, editors Martin Hallett and Barbara Karasek turned to scholar Jack Zipes to reframe who the beastly wolf represented to those listening to the tale. Zipes explained that the direct forebears of Perrault's literary tale of Little Red Riding Hood were not influenced by sun worship or Christian theology, but by the very material conditions of their existence and traditional pagan superstition. Little children were attacked and killed by animals and grown-ups in the woods and fields. Hunger often drove people to commit atrocious acts. Hallett and Karasek also noted that Little Red Riding Hood stands out in the world of fairy tales, because it features no royalty, no enchantment, no romance. Just a talking wolf with a big appetite. If we view Pennywise through this lens, We can see him as less of an agent of knowing evil, and more a villain of circumstance and chance. Zipes had been speaking of the horrors that might befall children in the past, but as we learned from Art the Clown, one thing that has never changed in all of time is the danger of being at the wrong place at the wrong time. Just as the wolf only took notice of Little Red Riding Hood because she happened to be going along the path in the woods that day, so too did it just happen that Georgie was playing in the rain and lost his boat in the storm drain. In either case, the predator would have wanted to lure their prey before the children were even aware that there was something perilous in their midst, but this is the case when it comes to real life dangers too. The fear that something isn't what it seems is one that transcends age and reminds us that innocence doesn't just mean youth, even if we understand that children are much more likely to fall victim to this kind of threat due to their lack of experience. That's what makes it so much more frightening when this clown is able to scare the losers well past the time that their childhood has ended. Hendrix might have been right about that door only opening one way but it didn't stop the creature from terrorizing the protagonists, and the audience, for quite some time after it closed. In calling the Losers back home, Pennywise proved that his mask still works, and he's not only gotten better at embodying our fears, he's having a damn good time doing it. This brings us to the first time we saw Pennywise's antics in Living Color. In 1990, television audiences were treated to the miniseries It, starring the incredible Tim Curry, in the role of the clown. The film has developed a very loyal fanbase over the years, most of which is due to Curry's role as the antagonist. While there are many critics of the overall quality of the miniseries in regards to its many restrictions to suit a television audience and the lackluster climax, which even Curry himself has said, is not frightening, the unanimous verdict of horror fans is how memorable and enjoyable The Clown was. One of the hallmarks of Curry's portrayal in this film and what has made it so enduring was how he leaned into the dark humor aspect of The Clown. As Kate Gardner wrote for The Mary Sue in her retrospective review of the older film, the best part of the miniseries is Tim Curry, because Curry seems to know exactly what role he's playing. He has to ham it up because that's what makes the role work. She goes on to say that Curry's menacing in his own right, which is true, but there's something to be said about the way he's presented that makes him more effectively frightening in some ways that aren't always obvious to adult eyes. In a comparison between the two portrayals of the character, Dalius Duclo of HorrorNews.net affirms that the truth strength of Curry's Pennywise lies not in action, but in what he says and how he interacts with his young cast. What both Gardiner and Duclo highlight is how Curry embraces and embodies the clown, relying on that slapstick humor that we've seen throughout history. This version of Pennywise is a callback to the duality that we saw in Grimaldi and de The filmmakers went out of their way to bring us this colorful character who is sure to get your attention, and might even make you laugh, even if it's the uncomfortable type of laughter. What's more is that Curry's Pennywise really is quite hilarious. The infamous library scene where he confronts Richie as an adult stands as one of the funnier moments in the film. While much has been made, by a number of critics, of the reactions of the background actors who are pretending not to notice his antics, it doesn't take away from the fun of the scene, nor even the creep factor, if you get what he's really doing. As funny as it is to watch him having fun at Richie's expense, there's more to Pennywise's shtick than just making our hero look bad. When he says, you're too old to stop me. He's actively preying on Richie's and the other Losers' current fears about their age, while mocking them in a way that leaves them powerless, like when they were kids. When they were children, only the Losers were privy to the clown's tricks, making them look crazy and unreliable, which also isolated them and made them vulnerable to his attacks. It speaks to how effective this portrayal is that despite the silly antics and the corny jokes, Curry's performance has been praised and remembered as being terrifying for 30 years. The insidious elements of that performance might not be the first thing you remember, but that's what made them work. You have no real memory of him being frightening, but you do remember being scared. He was able to be entertaining, and you wanted to keep watching, even when you knew something was wrong with him. What's more, he always revealed that there was something wrong in the way that no one else in Derry did. This is one of the key differences in this adaptation versus the book. While this take was certainly prevalent in the novel, the loss of innocence was more center stage in the story. Here, Pennywise's role had to shift to account for the loss of that backstory and history. He still brings our main characters into a place where they cannot stay children, But in this version of the clown, especially given how he's presented in the movie, he teaches them the truth about apathy and adulthood. Growing up, the Losers were stuck in a nightmare childhood, where they were constant victims of either Henry Bowers or the adults around them. Pennywise's tricks were cruel, but they were also to reinforce the reality that Derry, and specifically the adults in charge of the town, were unreliable. They were not just setting them on their path to adulthood for the Big Bad Wolf to find, they were openly ignoring that journey altogether. The film explicitly states this when Beverly, as an adult, recalls how the people around them would see the way Henry Bowers would hurt them, and would never act to stop him. Even when we're introduced to Ben as a child, We see Bowers openly state, you're dead fat boy, in front of the class and it's brushed off like he's thrown a paper airplane. The adults are more complicit in the abuse of the children for how neglectful they are, not only in failing to stop what they see, but also remaining silent about it. There's a kind of dismissive element to their plight that reinforces that this is just the way things are. Parents can go on after a death in the family, bullies are just people to avoid, and racism is just something to endure. All of it shoved into a little box of normal life that adults can set aside and forget about. Curry's Pennywise is laughing at them all, really. This version of the clown isn't letting them brush it off. The children of Derry know that this pleasant little town is just something that looks fine, but houses something bigger and much uglier than anyone wants to discuss. The adults around the kids might be able to forget about it, And pretend it's not happening but the losers aren't getting out of this without having to face down reality and this is especially true when the losers grow up and have now become the ignorant forgetful ones when bill gets the phone call to return from mike he asks himself how could i forget but the reality is that he was never taught by those he loved or even those whose job it was to remember the apathy they suffered as children was a part of their education in preserving the status quo, and how they learned to cope with their big-world problems. The ideal was to ignore everything that happened to them, and the world would just keep turning and they would be fine, right? Well, no. They became adults, and successful ones at that. But none of them could be said to be living happily, really. Bev ended up in an abusive relationship, Bill basically lives to work at the expense of his marriage, Eddie got stuck living with his mother, Mike never moved on from the town that tormented him, and Ben and Richie lead pretty carefree, but shallow lives. The only one who is different is Stan. Stan seems to thoroughly enjoy his life as an oblivious adult, but when faced with the demand to confront his past, he ends up killing himself to avoid going back to Derry. The clown allowed them to grow up, but wasn't about to let them become the people who had already failed them. His lesson for them was to move beyond the facade, that everything looks fine, so everything is fine. And it was only once they worked to break that cycle of forgetting and ignoring did they truly rip that veil off and actually start to lead happier lives. Of course, given the limitations and restrictions that came from having to adapt for a television audience, One of the things that the miniseries lacks is the full scope of how much bigger this lesson is than just facing down the things you're afraid of in the form of a scary clown. This is through no fault of its own, because, as the filmmakers will remind everyone, they were working with what they could to bring a very heavy, very complicated, and very difficult to visualize story to life. One of the aspects of this that had to be shrunk down to fit the scale of what they could create was who and what Pennywise actually was. While it's true that the miniseries allowed him to take different forms to torment his prey, the audience understands that the base form that we are to see him as is the clown. It's true that they showcase him in what's supposed to be his true form as a giant spider at the end, but as Tim Curry has said, it wasn't convincing to the eye, nor really to the audience in general. No one thinks of the spider monster first. And the reason that The Clown became iconic, was because that was the one form that accurately portrayed the theme of the movie about appearances being deceptive. Going forward into the more recent films, that appearance was going to get a whole lot more honest and, in doing so, was going to bring about more of the truth of what Pennywise really was. Right after people could wrap their head around there being a new clown in Derry. Much was made ahead of the film's release, not only about the choice of actor, but also the redesign of the character. One of the major concerns leading into the film was that Skarsgård would have quite a lot to do to fill the role. From the first released pictures of the new design, fans were skeptical about what a young, handsome actor could bring to this imposing figure. Though he had very kind things to say. Curry even commented on Bill Skarsgård's portrayal prior to the film's release, saying that it's going to be interesting to see what sort of clown face he puts on, because it's not an obvious clown face at all. Upon the release of the film, however, the role of the clown and the redesign made sense. Like Curry before him, he could still pull off the deceptive appearance, but unlike the previous version of the character, this Pennywise isn't really interested in making you laugh at all. Radford reminds us, in Bad Clowns, that clowns are liminal creatures that straddle categories, and thus make us uncomfortable, even if on a subconscious level, the way that any unknown person in disguise who stands near us, or interacts with us, might. This is the very essence of what Skarsgård's Pennywise brings to the role. Director Andy Muschietti stated that his choice to cast Skarsgård was based on how he connected with his madness and the inner balance of someone who can look very cute and sweet and childlike, but is hiding something terrifying. Skarsgård's own interpretation of the entity was that there's a childlike quality to him because he's forever linked to children. But unlike Curry, whom we link almost entirely to the clown... This figure is one that would never pass for someone that you could invite to a birthday party. This version of Pennywise is simply wearing the skin of a clown as an easy to recognize disguise. What lurks beneath is revealed further in what he becomes when he terrorizes Derry's children. One of the things that the filmmakers wisely decided to update was the time period and thus what scared the children. In the original film, We're only given a very limited window as to what the Losers are specifically afraid of. But the remake had time to expand the runtime, and by proxy the scope of what the kids feared. While Eddie is still plagued by lepers, which makes sense given his character, the others are afraid of things like zombies or a scary picture they're forced to see regularly. Like the clown, however, these are just placeholders. Their real fears are lurking barely below the surface, and only once he attacks the children does he reveal what's at the core of the things he takes the shape of. Mike sees horrific images of limbs grasping at burning doors, but it's not an accident that they are always black limbs. Richie says he's afraid of clowns, but his true fears are only revealed in the house on Kneebold Street, and again when he's an adult. We're going to get to the Losers and their adult terrors soon enough, but the Chapter 1 film is important because it set the stage for what Pennywise's role in their lives was. He took all those childhood small fears and used them to teach them the one lesson that no one in Derry would. This lesson becomes much more obvious when looking at Bill and Bev's encounters. Starting with Beverly. She lives in a world with no female role models at all, and the only women she ever does encounter either reject her, or are exceedingly cruel in how they treat her. It should be noted here that there's a lot of backstory in the book regarding why they are so wretched to her, but the remake simplifies this by pulling a Disney move, and killing off her mother off screen. They do this to emphasize that like our fairy tale heroines before, she is alone on this journey to adulthood, And furthermore, in her story, the big bad wolf isn't the clown. It's the only parent she has left. This gets even more difficult when it becomes apparent that she's on the cusp of puberty, and her father is determined to keep the inevitable from happening. When no one is there to guide her, it's Pennywise who steps up. This might sound like a bit of a stretch, but if you consider the difference in how Bev is treated versus her male counterparts, We see that the clown is already acknowledging that she's had to grow up too quickly, and that these small fears mean little to her in comparison to her real life. Getting doused in blood, the clown is making sure that she knows that her impending exit from childhood is not something she can negotiate or ignore, and the only way to avoid becoming a woman is to die. Beverly isn't the only one who's had a major spoke in the wheels of her childhood, though, nor is she the most obvious. Bill's encounters with Pennywise are all in relation to Georgie, his death forever linking the two. Throughout the film, Bill is obsessed with finding a way to get closure on what happened to his brother, even straining his friendships and putting them at risk to do it. What no one else really addresses is that this is the only outlet that Bill has to mourn. His parents deny and ignore his pain, and all his friends are unable to understand it. The only person, if we can call him that, who directly addresses what Bill feels and shows him the truth is Pennywise. He shows him his brother's corpse, and even shows him how he died. What's more, when Bill is trying his best to tell Richie that this isn't real, the clown reminds him that he was real enough for Georgie. This is the first time that Bill is confronted, without euphemisms or softer language, that his brother is dead. When you see the clown in this context, you see the way that these smaller fears are only there to give rise to the much bigger ones that they don't have words for yet. Namely, the understanding of adulthood and mortality. Radford states that the figure of the clown combines the superficially contradictory human feelings of horror and humor, but goes on to say that heavier subjects dealing with mortality, like getting cancer, dying in a car accident, or drowning in a riptide, are never mined for laughs by comics or clowns. This is what sets this Pennywise apart from even Curry's portrayal, because this is all he does. He's laughing at Bev's terrors over puberty, Mike's guilt over surviving the fire that killed his parents, Richie's fear over being forgotten, and Bill's obsession over trying to find his brother alive. He knows how vulnerable and lonely Ben is, and he's well aware of Stan's conflicted feelings over his religion, and how it hasn't prepared him to become a man, despite the ritual he's preparing for. He's laughing in the face of their terror over things like grief, survivor's guilt, abuse, neglect, and the loss of their innocence. When no one in Derry will acknowledge what it's like for these children to have to carry these burdens, it's always the clown who makes them face it directly, and though he is cruel in his treatment of them, he never lies about what they're afraid of, nor does he deflect it into something that can be dismissed. In this film, Pennywise is presented not as a clown, but as an entity. In stripping the mythology that King had built around him, we see Pennywise as what he really is. Death personified. From the beginning, he's always been a killer, but in this film, his role is expanded to become not only a bringer of death, but also the one who teaches the truth about it. While in the book, he is the manipulator of Derry and its neglectful adults. In the film, his job is to pick up where they have failed and showcase the consequences of their ignorance. Psychologist Jeff Greenberg from the University of Kansas stated in an interview with The Atlantic that the fear of death drives people to maintain faith in their own culture's beliefs, and to follow the culture's path to an enduring significance that will outlast their own physical death, often to the detriment of others who seem to block their pursuit of these goals. As the losers in Derry become mature enough to understand death and their intimate relationship with it, they are actively challenging the status quo. Whether it's the loss of Georgie, their classmates, Mike's parents, Beverly's mother, or Ben's father, these kids are steeped in death that no one wants to talk about, never mind acknowledge in any meaningful way. Their ability to grow up with death as a reality is being hampered the people who refuse to break from Derry's oppressive stance to remain silent and forgetful. About the only person in town whose relationship to death is different is poor Henry Bowers. Much like the losers, Bowers is alone on his journey to adulthood, but unlike someone like Bev or Eddie, whose parents are determined to keep them locked away from maturity at all costs, Henry is well aware of his own mortality. In fact, Death lurks in every wrong move he may make, and his journey is a precarious one, that he knows may end before tomorrow. Though subtle, Henry Bowers shows the audience multiple times that in the face of his very abusive father, he is terrified and powerless. In the scene where Henry is caught using one of his guns, the elder Bowers unloads the remaining rounds at the ground near his son's feet, terrifying and humiliating him to reinforce that he alone will pull the puppet strings to decide if he will live or die. Since death is a constant in the Bowers' household, it's no surprise that Pennywise's role in Henry's life takes a more sinister and unfortunate turn for both him and the Losers. It doesn't take a psychoanalyst to see that Henry's major coping mechanism for his dangerous home life is to pay it forward to the people he feels he can get away with tormenting. In the same interview with The Atlantic, Greenberg said that studies have shown that reminders of death arouse negative responses to others who violate or challenge our worldview, and that our need for terror management plays a substantial role in prejudice and inter-conflict groups. This is well on display in his treatment of especially Mike, the only black child in the group. He repeatedly torments him, taunting him about the fire that killed his parents, which is also an echo of his father's racism. This is a small but important detail, as it shows us how, despite the fact that he is in constant danger of being killed by his father, Henry is still willing to adopt the same violent prejudices of the man. While this is something that can be read as Bowers being a product of his environment, and he likely wouldn't have strayed from this regardless, it's also worth it to recognize how little choice he's given. His hatred is a means of placating a man who has the power to murder him and get away with it, and that looming threat over his head would never allow him to choose differently on the matter. That is, until death came along, but by then, he was already indoctrinated. Henry Bowers' relationship to death was never going to be a good one, given his circumstances, but where the Losers had each other to draw strength and eventually understanding from, all Henry had in the end was Pennywise. Since his entire understanding of mortality came as a threat from a power imbalance, it's not surprising that what death eventually became for Henry was freedom. When he makes the transition from being the victim into being a murderer, Bowers is now entirely unrestrained, free from the threat that his father represented, and, much more frighteningly, free to take his place. We can see the clown as being evil here, but everything that built Bowers came before Pennywise woke up. His father instilled in him the racism, the need to dominate and violently punish those he saw as beneath him, and the false understanding that he had to become Death to conquer his fear of it. To this end, Pennywise once again is acting as the unfiltered truth that Henry was created and fostered by the abuse and willful ignorance of Derry. All his influence did was speed up the inevitable. What he couldn't accomplish, however, was giving Bowers freedom ultimately from his fear of death. Unlike the Losers, he doesn't forget what happened, but also doesn't grow up in any healthy or meaningful way then again, our Losers hadn't entirely grown into their own lessons either. Just like in the previous incarnations, the kids became adults and moved on, forgetting dairy, their promise to come back, and ultimately, what their fears had taught them. One thing this film does is give us more context by showing how, after they defeated the monster, the Losers remained friends and continued to develop into teenagers, but not long after they grew up went their separate ways, and headed out into the wider world, putting Derry behind them. When we catch up to them 27 years later, again, they're all extremely successful in their chosen professions, but just like before, only Mike stayed in Derry. Acting as guardian and memory keeper for them all, he isn't entirely struggling, but he's not exactly living the high life of his friends. He's arguably the most important member of the group, however, because unlike the others, he alone initiates their final battle with the monster, and themselves. Mike represents the lingering sense of fear of mortality they all learned when they were children, but this isn't to say that he's doing particularly well regarding that lesson himself. Mike has let his fear hold him back in Derry, making him comfortable, but ultimately unfulfilled. In a sense, he's learned that he will die, but his past is still haunting him, chaining him to the reality that he knows, even if it isn't one that makes him happy. The rest of the Losers aren't doing much better, even if most of them, save Bev, are living fairly ordinary lives, full of the banal elements of being an adult. They're too busy, too wrapped up in the daily grind to concern themselves with the lingering fears of their past, that they won't acknowledge or make time for. As adults, they've had time to fall into the same patterns mentioned in previous incarnations, They've set their past aside unattended and unconcerned with it, despite how it eats away at them inside. Each of the Losers has some lingering element of their past that has allowed them to grow up, but not grow past it. So just like Mike, they cling to and repeat patterns that are holding them back. When Pennywise signals to Mike that it's time for the Losers to come home, it's not simply to give them their parting balloon. This time the clown is telling them a much more personal truth, and one that prepares them for the new stage of adulthood, growing towards death. Pennywise as a figure of death is different for the Losers the second time around, because while he's there to remind them of their mortality, by this point they've already more or less outgrown that first lesson, except for Stan. The fears of the past, like scary pictures or puberty or even just being forgotten, are no longer effective because they aren't really relevant in the wake of deadlines, relationship woes, career pressures, and the goals you set for the coming year. Even so, there's more to learn. It's time for them to truly grow up. And to do this, they have to finally face the big fears that were hiding behind the masks of the little ones. These big fears are many things to all of the losers, but not the least of which is that each has to reconcile the events of their past led to the end of their childhood to quote a different movie that summed it up rather perfectly in the film the crow the main antagonist top dollar played by michael wincott gave a speech while looking at a snow globe with a graveyard in it he claimed that his father gave it to him for his fifth birthday and said to him that your childhood's over the moment you know you're gonna die the losers initially learned that they could die and that it was only by accepting this possibility that they would be able to move beyond this to become adults. When they actually became adults, however, they had to come to terms with the fact that possibility meant certainty, and that it was time to stop living in the shadows of these fears. Upon their return, each of the losers had to confront their past once more, this time with the mask off. Each of the tokens that they are made to sacrifice to defeat Pennywise is a link to their past selves, and ultimately reveals what that true fear really was. Lurking below the images of lepers and blood and past disasters was the terror now fully realized as wasting diseases like cancer, or the threat of having an abusive partner that keeps you trapped by insisting that they are the only love you deserve, or the deep loneliness of never being able or safe to express your sexual identity Or the overwhelming understanding that grief, when left unattended, will rot into guilt. This is most evident when Bill is forced to confront not only the image of his younger brother, but also his own younger self. The boat he made for Georgie was given back to him to force him to confront the truth, that he'd grown to believe that if he hadn't pretended to be sick that day, his brother would still be alive. While Mike's survivor's guilt, Had time to foster into a fear of leaving Derry and his parents' memory, Bill's hadn't had time to bloom until much later. The lesson that Pennywise teaches him is that grief is not something that can be ignored away no matter how far he moves or how hard he tries. In fact, the terrible truth that he has been avoiding for 27 years is the acknowledgement that grief is forever. Author and clinical counsellor Megan Devine wrote in her essay for The Order of the Good Death that accidents and natural disasters can't be treated as a natural process. Hate crimes, gender-based violence, death hastened by the lack of access to healthcare, death created by acts of war, or targeted genocide. We can't claim those deaths as beautiful. Talking about these kinds of death, and the grief that comes with them, is one of the last real taboos. We saw this in chapter one, where no one wanted to address Georgie's death. Bill is haunted by his grief, but it was only through the other losers did he have an outlet for it. As an adult, it slipped away from him, and he'd allowed it to become a narrative that he could play an active role in. In trying to make sense of a death that didn't fit into the natural process, he could cope by blaming himself. But that just denied the uncomfortable truth that children can and do die. And sometimes, even when we feel like we could have prevented it, there's nothing we can do about it. When Pennywise kills a child in front of Bill, he's denying him the ability to hide behind his illusions. No matter what story he or any of the other losers want to tell themselves, the truth is that they too will die, and as long as they deny the certainty, they will live in fear of it. When each of the losers is able to confront this reality, Pennywise has nothing more to teach them, and with his dying breath, he finally gives them the confirmation that you're all grown up. And that was quite a lot and quite a bit of diversity between All Our Fiends and Grace Paint. And this was only some of the many clown faces that we've seen popping up in popular culture over the last little while. While some critics may think that this figure is getting too cliché or overdone, if we've seen nothing else, it's that the Clown is a very versatile character, who can embody a lot of different needs, messages, tropes, and even lessons. Every adaptation allows for it to change and grow into something new or reinvent something old. As a transgressive figure, it can cross boundaries that no one else can, taking our most taboo subjects and making sure to laugh at them every chance they get. Whether it's abuse, poverty, unexplained violence, mental illness, sexuality, or mortality, our bad clowns aren't afraid to tell us how it really is, all while laughing at our fears. The history shows us that no matter how much we think we might be over the clown, as a pop culture figure, who's always willing to tell us the truth. It's not about to die anytime soon. And with that, we are ready to close off the topic of the month. Thank you to everyone who has joined me and let me be your guide. The Armchair Scholar's Guide was written and researched by Danielle Clausen. As always, any of the articles that I mentioned are linked in the show notes, and I will have them annotated for you on my website so you know a bit more about each article and what to expect from them. You can find that under the heading Litanies. If you are interested in seeing the transcripts for this podcast or would like early access, I highly suggest that you check out my Patreon. My supporters are already aware of next month's theme and what surprises you can expect to celebrate the month of October. If not, I still hope that you will join me next month as I dig into a topic that's as grand as the spookiest month itself. But until next time, Keep studying, and wherever possible, let curiosity be your guide.